Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Pearls of Wellness, brought to you by the Center for African American Health. I'm your host, Deidre Johnson. In this episode, we'll be going into part two of the Pearls of Wellness education series with special guest, Dr. Janice Mackey. Today, we're going to be talking about America's education system. Thank you so much for tuning in to this important and timely discussion. So today I want to welcome a good friend, Dr. Janice Mackey. Dr. Janice, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. appreciate you. Now, can you share for our audience um, not only a little bit about your background, but what it is that you do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I always love to start my story Um, with ancestors. I think it's extremely grounding and critical um, reflection of who I am today and what I do. So on my maternal side, my grandmother shared with me that her grandfather, who lived in Elaine, Arkansas, with her mother, um, actually um, owned a speakeasy. And white folks would frequent this speakeasy. And what's important about that is Um, There's something called the Elaine, Arkansas riots that a lot of folks don't know about. And because her grandfather owned this speakeasy, they were actually able to broker with white folks and know ahead of time about the riots. And so there was a white man who he knew at the time who said, you need to leave, take your family and everything on your back because there's going to be riots tomorrow. And so that message, that entrepreneurship, that brokering Um, actually saved the lineage of my family. Mm. Um, And it's one of the initial understandings and knowings um, of my ancestral history as it pertains to entrepreneurship. Um, Fast forward, um, my parents, they've always been really committed to the village work. Shout out to uh, my mom, who was always a children's church ministry leader and now an elder in our church. My father worked at Lookout Mountain. Um, and had a culinary trade, and he leveraged that to um, break bread and do soul work with system-engaged youth at Lookout Mountain. And so I think that um, infused so much of my ethos and who I am um, and the way I be today, um, which fast-forwards to me becoming an entrepreneur myself at 25 years old and starting Young Aspiring Americans for Social and Political Activism, or YASPA for short, um, to position BIPOC youth to reclaim academic career in civic spaces. And um, we work across three school districts, Aurora Public Schools, Cherry Creek Public Schools, and Denver Public Schools um, with youth fifth grade and up to cultivate them to be civically engaged in community and career. And we're 13 years old this month. Congratulations. Thank you. You know, it's interesting. So years ago I was at a foundation and we were hosting different um, discussions from health equity leaders from around the US. And I'll never forget, I think it was Manuel Pastor. Um, I had a conversation with him. And one of the things he said was, leadership programs are especially important for youth of color because not only does it build their skills, but it lets them understand that it's not them. Mm. It's it's these systems within which they have to function. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, that deeply resonates 100%. 
100%. Um, and the reason it deeply resonates as well is um, one of my early learnings was exactly that as a young person and being an entrepreneur. And so um, I was constantly civically engaged in my younger years in high school and in college and um, oftentimes was the sole black face in the space. And um, in many ways, I internalized that and wondered, why am I constantly the one in this space or the one of a few in this space? And so, you know, I internalized that um, in my earlier stages as this depiction that supposedly we don't care, right? But it really, it wasn't a lack of care at all. Um, to your point, it was these systems and us not being able to have a sacred space to civically engage on our terms, right? And so hence Yaspa, um, creating that sacred sense of belonging and um, creating dignified ways to civically engage for young folks. Are there any statistics that you can share with us about how our young people are doing these days when it comes to education and higher ed? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I'm going to rattle off some of these stats, right? Um, and then I'm also going to um, call us in a bit with regards to the lens through which we understand these stats. Mm -hmm. um, and so first, um, I want to reference um, the diversity of our education workforce or the lack thereof. <laughs> um, CPR did a story um, just recently um, winter of 2022, and essentially shared that there are only 1.6% of educators who are Black. Mm. And that is just starking, right? Um, and then also there's 8.8% of educators who self-identify as Hispanic or um, Latinx or Latine. Another stat um, that many folks know and we hear about, especially because of the ways that um, TAPER works in this state and education funding, um, is that there's studies that indicate that Colorado is actually ranked 48th in the nation with regards to educator pay, right? So with starting pay at 35724 um, all the way up to typically like 58183 depending on, of course, your tenure in the district that you're in. I want to also shout out our youth council um, who um, does work on concurrent enrollment racial equity. We put out a report initially in 2018 and have had some subsequent reports of which are on our website, gaspa.org. Um, so just to pause really quick and share with folks, concurrent enrollment is an opportunity for youth to take college classes for free while they're in high school. So it's this umbrella of dual enrollment. Um, Colorado Department of Higher Ed indicated that um, concurrent enrollment participation grew by 32.9%, um, but particularly um, with the focus on our Black students, um, it increased 27% among Asian students, 23.3% among Black students, 19.9% um, among students identifying as two or more races, 18.4% for our Latino, Latina students, and 15.8% for American Indian and or Alaska Native students. Um, lastly, um, some data that I wanna share is about workforce um, pipeline work, right? So um, recently, again, this past winter in 2022, um, there was a Colorado Talent Pipeline report that was released, which I think is really important to couch some of this data in as well. 
Um, the average age of an employed entrepreneur in this country is 44, and 71% of entrepreneurs are white. 14.3% identify as Latino, Latine, 6.2 Asian, 6% um, are Black. And so we have a lot of work to do. And the reason why I wanted to not just rattle off the stats, right, but also contextualize them is because the lens at which we look at these stats matter. So we could easily digest all these stats and be like, oh, well, essentially what you're saying, right, um, is Black folks are quote unquote behind, right? Um, and I want to recant that type of a narrative and refuse that type of narrative and really call out what are the ways in which we navigate our psychological negotiations um, in these spaces imbued with white supremacy and systemic racism. So there's reasons why our numbers are the way they are, and it's not because of any sort of lack thereof of our own brilliance and our own Black finesse, I would call it, um, but really the ways in which systems are not really addressing things like administrative racism and interest convergence. And so there's a lot that needs to be done. Um, we have to move away from this notion of compositional diversity, right? Like, oh, let's just increase the numbers. <laughs> Increasing the numbers we know um, doesn't necessarily do much for our souls in these spaces and the ways we experience education and workforce and entrepreneurship. So say a little bit um, more about that. How would you define administrative racism with an example and also interest divergence? Whew. So um, I'm going to give you a story by way of illustrating this, actually, because I love storytelling. Um, so we actually, um, we piloted a program um, last summer, our Young Men of Color Summer of Activism program. And we're excited that we're going to have this program again this summer and expand it to young women of color as well. Last summer, there were 20 young males, um, predominantly Black males, who we were working with um, between the ages of um, about 14 to 17. And they got the opportunity to go to a higher ed campus for a week, which is awesome. Um, however, we were dealing with a lot of administrative racism. <laughs> um, and mm -hmm. I say that because as they were in space enjoying themselves in the campus, we were incessantly getting emails from folks on the administrative side of this higher ed institution saying things like, oh, um, they really weren't supposed to be at the swimming pool at 12. It was supposed to be 1 p.m. Now, let's talk about that. Why, are, mm -hmm. why is that even an email? Why are they not allowed to claim space? Right. Mm -hmm. um, and why are the facilitators and myself um, having to deal with this type of administrative racism? Right. This is not create a, a space of belonging or a sense of belonging um, for these young black males and males of color on this higher ed campus when they're constantly essentially being told you don't belong here. Right. By folks who are trying to be technocratic about their time in that space, knowing there weren't even students in these spaces. These spaces were empty, by the way, because it was summer. So why can't they be in the rec center at a certain time when they want to, when it works best for them and their flow? Why can't they be at the pool um, at times that work best for their flow, right? And so while there were some programmatic type folks in the higher ed space who were like, oh yeah, come on in, administratively, we were navigating a lot of racism behind the scenes. Mm. Yeah. 
The other thing I know you wanted me to speak to was this notion of interest convergence, right? And so interest convergence is really um, this notion that um, black and brown folks, we can experience, you know, joy, freedom, and liberation so far as it appeases and is comfortable <laughs> for white folks and the agenda of white folks and, and whiteness. And so um, a lot of this too is something that I've been talking to funders about um, and talking to donors about and talking with community about, because as we know in 2020, there was a deep end, I would say, racial unreckoning. We knew that white supremacy had been persisting, right, for centuries. Um, but that was the year for many folks that people had awakened, quote unquote, to white supremacy. And right. so, you know, as I'm sure you experienced this too, sis, <laughs> um, being a Black CEO, but we had received a lot of funding, which was a blessing, 100%, right? And so um, while there was an increase in funding, um, there was also simultaneously this increase of a desire for us to, quote unquote, perform for um, white folks to look good. <laughs> right. Or yep. um, as my colleague, Nuri um, Heckler, Dr. Nuri Heckler, shout out to him, would say so that white folks could have a moral license. Right. Like, mm -hmm. oh, well, I don't belong to that racist group because I care. And here's how I showed I cared. Right. I asked right. you to come talk during Black History Month. I asked you to come perform for us in our group so that we can act like we care about justice, equity, diversity and inclusion. Um, and so that was the year for me where we created this mantra in Yaspa kind of internally and put it out there that um, your awakening to white supremacy is not our emergency. Right. Thank and, you. And not our labor. Yes. Yes. 100%. And so, you know, we appreciate that you have awakened, but we will not be um, tirelessly performing for you to have that moral license, right? And that pat on the back that you're looking for, for caring about racism all of a sudden and your um, implication within that. Thank you for sharing that. And it's interesting because the dynamic I'm very well aware of, I had never heard the term interest convergence. So I'll add that to my back pocket. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, it's, it's interesting when you get the opportunity to put some language to this, because I know as a young entrepreneur as well, and I know you experienced this, I'm sure, in the work too, in the nonprofit sector, in doing policy and systems change work. Um, <laughs> there's these moments I remember where I was relentlessly um, talking to our youth village and saying, hey, we have to go to this board meeting. We have to show up to this meeting so that we can rub elbows with so-and-so and so-and-so. And, -so and, you know, we have to demonstrate that we care. And it became really extractive, right? And so the mm -hmm. moment of interest convergence for us was, <laughs> you know, we may have been asking for A, but we didn't get A, right? We got um, a diluted version of A that we were asking for, if you will. Um, because of interest convergence. Um, it was really an opportunity for white folks to kind of tokenize us um, as a Black-led organization, um, particularly focused on BIPOC youth, to say, oh, look, we have diversity at the table. But yet when it came time for youth, right, to ask some of these elected folks to come to our table, come in our space, then all of a sudden there's crickets, right? And so it was this experience of interest convergence, like, hey, 
you know, your liberation and your meaning making and um, desires um, to be civically engaged are fine so far in that it actually complements or honors my ego and agenda. So I want to talk a little bit more about teachers in the pipeline um, from two perspectives. One, just from the perspective of getting more African-American men and women in the classroom. And it's interesting. Um, a good friend of mine from college, DPS years ago, actually recruited her from North Carolina to teach. She was in their second grade. And when she got here, I remember her telling me she was stunned at how not only non-supportive, but how few resources she had in her Montbello classroom mm. that she thought the resources were few, but then when she went to another school, the, the, um, the difference was so stark, it was shocking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, oh, I, I say that ultimately, you know, here's, here's a woman who scored nationally, like top 10 when it came to educating that age group, fluent in Japanese and French. And after a couple of years, there was this push out and she was one of the first to be pushed. And so to me, that was yet another example of, A, they say we're not out there, but we really are. So I, I really just wanted to describe that scenario because that was my first up close and personal of someone who really proved to me the lie of, oh, we're doing our best to diversify the workforce, but you know, there's just nobody out there. <laughs> Oh, yes, definitely with you um, as far as being that we ain't out here. We are out here <laughs> um, and we are claiming space out here, um, albeit, you know, in different ways, in abolitionist ways, right? Where we're like, you know what? Um, Y'all just want our bodies <laughs> in this space, but you don't really want our mind and souls. Right. You don't want our mm -hmm. ethos. You don't really desire our ethic of care that we bring or our womanism as black women. And so um, that's what we constantly see. Right. Is this dehumanizing experience oftentimes that black educators and, and brown educators experience to the point of their own, you know, their own taxation of their health. Um, and we know this as like racial battle fatigue. Shout out to um, Dr. Asia Lyons, who she did her dissertation on um, the racial battle fatigue of Black educators and their families who mm. are teachers. And so we know this to be true, right? Um, like the experiences that you're sharing, as well as the experiences of the educators themselves. And so even, you know, within the Yaspa ecosystem, we have over five folks who work with us who come from districts because they were over it. <laughs> um, they were tired of experiencing spirit murdering in the spaces that they were in. Um, we know that oftentimes there's that hypervisibility, right? When mm -hmm. you are that black educator that is holding space <laughs> constantly for black youth who are being criminalized constantly, um, simply because of the way that they be and the way that they exist and move and the way that they speak, right? Um, and so we're not only holding space for them, but we're trying to figure out also oftentimes how to hold space for ourselves because that space for us is not being held by administrators or through systems um, that constantly assault our mind, bodies, and souls. 
um, and dehumanize us. So 100%, 100%, we know that compositional diversity and simply trying to color up a space, <laughs> um, particularly um, by way of teacher workforce is, is not it, not gonna happen, right? And a, another thing, and I've been calling it out because I'm, I'm getting tired of it. Um, flipping the topic, talking about students, especially students of color, there's so much in the media these days or these discussions you're in where people are talking about students as if they're the problem mm. and these all these poor teachers all what they have to deal with <laughs> and demonizing the students and glorifying teachers who more often than not are the perpetrators mm -hmm. and you know it's interesting you know a bit about a journey that i had so i you know my sister and i um we were pretty privileged. We ended up, we were at St. Mary's Academy, K through 12, both went to private colleges. And so when my sons were young, I just put them in St. Mary's for um, grade school. Cause that's, that's the system I knew. I'm like, Oh, I can trust it. And I have to admit, you know, one was the only black child in his class. Um, the other was one of three. And we had interesting discussions about that now because when you have that experience, for me, it, it normalized it, which I don't think is a good thing. But still, because of the culture of that school, when they left there, they loved education. They saw themselves as very intelligent with self-efficacy and you know ready for the world. And through a um, through a family circumstance, they ended up at one of the charter schools that's part of the DSST. Denver School of Science and Technology System. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have to admit, because part of me was like, well, more diverse. And, you know, they were talking about outcomes, like all those bells and whistles that I was looking for. And I have to admit, to this day, that's the, the one thing in my life that I regret, because that's where my young sons learned about racism. Mm. And, you know, at first it was, well, oh, I don't like this teacher, the teacher's mean or um, that was kind of the theme. And, you know, you you do, in my experience, you do what you were raised with, which is you're not gonna like everybody, you're there to get education, just, you know, move through. But it started happening so much that I started talking to their friends um, only to find out that there were teachers that wouldn't let black boys go to the bathroom. There was a young white seventh grade English teacher that told a young Muslim woman, get that rag off your head. I mean, those were, that was at the tip of the iceberg and nothing was done about it. It was like a normalized system of um, traumatizing children. And the only way to escape that trauma was to have your spirit broken, in my view. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my kids were raised like mine, which is you stand up for yourself and others. Yes. And if you need stand-up assistance, mom's got your back. <laughs> yep, that's right. And it really turned into a, a ongoing fight. It started with me just asking questions because I was like, oh, they've got to know, they must not know this is going on. But guess what they did? And I didn't really go outside the system until one of my sons was bullied by um, a non-black boy who was known to have education issues, behavioral issues, would cuss out teachers. They were coddling him. 
Mm. And the moment he did a Snapchat, a Snapchat picture of a gun he was going to use my on my child. Mm-mm. Um, when the school found out about it, oh no, we we don't have to do anything about this. He was just acting out. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. You know, DPS rules are X. Oh no, no, we're a charter. We don't have to do that. And so I just went as public as I could get. Mm-hmm. Um, and initially, I felt listened to, but it was only because I have the position I have. I know other mothers who were banned from school just for asking questions. Mm-hmm. And even that, you know, I got some advice to ask for their disaggregated da- data. Um, at that time, they had seven schools, but somehow had never bothered to collect that. Mm. And at least we were able to show that, well, guess what? Despite being the most diverse school in this little middle school, middle school system, um, 80% of black boys are being um, disciplined. And for weird, goofy stuff, like a belt mm. or you know, chewing gum, it was just dumb. And I guess I share that to say, you know, ultimately, um, even when we told our story, it was distorted as, well, you know, although their mother wouldn't agree, the teachers did their best and X, Y, Z. And I walked away with two things. One, um, really understanding that gaping maw of the preschool to prison pipeline that my children were in. Mm-hmm. And I luckily, you know, because for them, high school was wonderful, but it was a healing process to recover from middle school. Mm. And the other piece of it was um, a lesson for them for change, because even though it didn't feel like anything happened, at first I was excited because a year later, that school director who, you know, at best was incompetent, but at worst was a virulent racist, he was replaced, I think actually by a woman of color. But then come to find out, you know, a couple years later, he's back in the system. So they just put him on the shelf so no one to pay attention and plugged him right back in. Mm. Um, but meanwhile, this system continues to grow. Last time I checked, they're spreading like wildfire in Aurora. And our parents are sold this narrative of, oh, we can come, we can save your kid, we can X, Y, Z. Not <laughs> that. There's a difference between encouraging a student to be the best they can be, learn, love learning, be a lifelong learner, or really preparing them to fit into a little box that you've defined for them with low expectations and breaking them down day by day. Mm-hmm. And I am, um, one day I want to actually write more about it and probably talk to you and others. Because, and that's what people don't understand. Um, I remember I was talking to a woman when I was going through this and she said to me, you know, have you, have you, oh, I told her this is my first time having them in public school. And her response to me was, oh, okay. So you're used to being listened to. As Mm -hmm. if to only be listened to, I need to be paying thousands of dollars a year. Wow, yeah. Mm. And I think that's what they rely on, though. These toxic systems rely on us not to fight, yep, not to demand more. But the other side of it is, when I started this, I think I got emails probably from about 20 plus Black mothers. Thank you so much. This is so important. My daughter started cutting after going there. My son, like all these horror stories of why Ooh. they snapped 
their sons and daughters out. Yet only a couple came with me to those meetings because everybody else assumed, oh, well, nothing's gonna happen. And I think that's that fatigue because- Yes. Yeah, it's gonna be hard, but if you do nothing, that's guaranteed that nothing will happen. But at least you can live with yourself if you push forward. And I think that's part, that's part of my, what I need to balance mm-hmm. is because, you know, my father raised my sister and I, um, with the quote, a coward dies a thousand deaths. So I'd rather put up a good fight just so you know that I was there and this is what I stood for mm-hmm. than let you microaggression me until I'm talking out of the side of my face and, you know, collapse. Ooh, that was long. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, I'm just um, holding you and your sons in in my spirit. I I remember us discussing that and you speaking truth to power about that and the emotional wear and tear of that. I honor that Um, 100%. And it absolutely resonates um, with my experience as a mother as well. I have um, three daughters and they always same, just like you, right? I ensured that they knew how to read before school and that they spoke up for themselves. And um, all three of my daughters had the same educator, I remember, um, for ECE. And there was this constant narrative that they were, quote unquote, being bullies because they were taller um, and a bit thicker than the other, quite frankly, frail white girls. Mm-hmm. And um, they were putting sand in my daughter's hair and they knew like it's a whole thing um, to be doing hair, <laughs> you know, particularly mm-hmm. with sand in it. Right. Um, and so they defended themselves. They told them to stop verbally. But then, yes, they did protect their physical space as well. Right. Because um, we raised them to do th- to do that, to protect their space and that nobody's entitled to their space. Right. Um, and so what ended up being, of course, reported out (laughs) from this white female educator was, you know, that, oh, my girls weren't being nice and understanding and patient and that they were engaging in bullying. And I said, oh, no, you won't put that trope on my daughters. Absolutely not. This is how we raised them. They did exactly what we raised them to do. And it sounds like you were the issue and your interpretation is the issue and you have some more reflecting to do. Um, if you're going to continue to educate Black children. Um, So that so resonates. And, you know, as they continue to get older and were engaging with educators as an older age, um, they were always very, very privy to kind of the ways in which whiteness moves, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And the perpetuation of it within the classroom. And so they would raise their hand and call educators out about things. And this was, of course, deemed as, you know, disrespectful or, you know, they weren't necessarily engaging in the lesson, right, that they were supposed to be engaging in. Again, as you said earlier, right, supposedly it's about them, the student, rather than it being incumbent upon the educator to address the systemic um, racism and stereotypical ways of being um, in that classroom. That's a problem. And my girls were calling it out, rightfully so. Um, and so that's why what, what that also makes me think about, too, is, you know, the adultification of our black children and the ways in which that constantly happens and leads to them being criminalized 
for their brilliance and their Black finesse and the ways in which they do speak up and demonstrate for others their mental leaps, which is a gift and a blessing for others, quite frankly. Um, and the mammification even of our Black girls. I know mm -hmm. um, my daughters were constantly <laughs> positioned to, quote unquote, be an unpaid TA in their classrooms. Like, oh, you're doing so well. And so I'm going to pair you up with so-and-so um, and have you teach them. Or, oh, can you speak to this? It's Black History Month. Um, I'm sorry, they're not getting a stipend. They're not getting compensated to be your TA or your para, right? And so this starts at such a young age and creates this omission, right, which is another form of racism, um, from the educator actually doing their job, right, and imposing mm -hmm. that labor on our Black children. Thank you for sharing that, because it also reminds me how so much hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. um, I was talking to my mom the other day and she was remembering where, you know, when she was in third grade, she was helping the teacher. And I said, but the, the challenge of that mom is that it was framed as, oh, look at this opportunity, when really that took the opportunity away from you. Yes. And the same thing, you know, even though I had my um, eyes opened with regard to what charter schools do, doesn't mean the private schools are any better necessarily. They have their own challenges. Um, and I'll never forget when I was, um, I was so happy in second grade because I got to go to third grade math. <laughs> <laughs> and suddenly, oh, instead of doing this, we want you to help kids in the class. Mm. And at first I was like, oh, well, you know, that sounds wonderful. Cause you know, you're a young person and it, it's like responsibility. Luckily, I went home and told my father, who was livid, the very next day he was there, no, no, this is not what's going to happen. And it's it's a balance of learning. I think the hardest thing to sometimes as a parent is you want your kids to be open-hearted and good people, but then you're putting them in systems where, while you still want them to kind of maintain that, teaching them that other folks aren't necessarily like this. And this is how you have to protect yourself. Mm -hmm. But I say that from my lens, because what I love about the young people now, like I was raised to like navigate this craziness mm -hmm. and just never let them see you sweat, which carries its own trauma. Mm. But now it feels like young people are saying, I don't want to navigate this. This just needs to be changed. Mm -hmm. And I'm here for that. <laughs> yes. Yes. 100%. You know, it, what you're sharing, it reminds me of um, Howard Thurman and, um, you know, Howard Thurman indicates essentially that laws are limited and that they can only establish the climate or the rules for fellowship, but they are limited in that they cannot guarantee the spiritual and moral requisites of a beloved community. This yeah. work must happen over time with the process of moral processes, practices, that cultivate a climate of grace and compassion, because without this, right, we're only building the symbols of a great society. Um, and I, I shared that. Go ahead, please. Can you, can you share what that's from? <laughs> yeah. So um, I specifically I got this quote out of Jen Wright's book, The Four Pivots. Shout out to um, Sean Jen Wright and his work on healing centered engagement. The book is called The Four Pivots written in 2022, and that's on page 101. Okay, I've heard about that book. So note to self to, to order that, because that quote um, 
Gosh, this has so much. Yeah, there's uh, there's so much there, especially, you know, I know you're in the policy space as well. And um, our youth, they are engaged in policy work, um, big P and small P policy. And the reason I kind of disentangle that big P and small P is, you know, big P policy at times, um, it can be simply symbolic, right? Yeah. Shiny um, object. Exactly. Like, oh, we got to win, right? And we need those wins. But there's policy and practice. <laughs> and the implementation of the policy matters with our concurrent enrollment work where, you know, there's been policies passed and they're like, oh, we're diversifying concurrent enrollment, <laughs> right? We passed a bill, yay. And, and, you know, we even helped work on it as well and it's necessary. Um, but the accountability and the implementation to ensure again, right, that black students are not one, only accessing it, but that they're getting a quality experience and that they're getting the opportunity to experience concurrent enrollment in ways that increase their racial efficacy. And so that's why our students in the, their most recent report called for mandating ethnic studies and concurrent enrollment, because we know that academic and career efficacy is directly tied to and connected to racial identity development. So I have a question for you. Um, we talk about the social determinants of health in these conversations and about kind of what's currently going on, but we also want to make sure we shine the light on different solutions and resources. Mm -hmm. What could parents um, or anyone who really wants to see Black students thrive do to support them? Oh, yeah, there's a lot here. Um, you know, one of the first things I would say is to really be mindful of the distraction of whiteness and specifically toward Toni Morrison um, in 1970 talks about the distraction of racism. And so it's one thing to, yes, absolutely, right? Be able to identify whiteness and racism when it's happening. Um, however, it's not our job to undo white supremacy because we can create that. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and so really anchoring into the black finesse of your child, right? So you know, maybe they are chatty, right, in class. That's a sign of engagement. <laughs> Honor that as Black finesse, right? Um, maybe they are um, seen as like rambunctious and they move around a lot. Um, that's a sign of Black finesse. It's a sign of their brilliance and action and a demonstration as well of their ability to creatively learn, right? So how can we, as parents, honor that within our children and then ensure that that's the narrative we're going back to the educator with um, rather than kind of the okie doke student parent conference, right? Where the teacher's like, oh, your child's doing this. They're doing that from a deficit lens. We as parents need to ensure that there's a reframing and that our children's behaviors um, and their ethos and the brilliant ways in which they exist is exhibited as black finesse. And call on the teacher to do their job and ensure that they are engaging our learners in versatile, creative ways, um, rather than being narrow-minded and kind of creating one-size-fits-all approaches. Exactly. And I, um, I, I know some fantastic teachers. I also know some who, really, to be quite honest, shouldn't be exposed to the public, let alone being <laughs> young mom. Facts. <laughs> um, you know, along those lines as well, I, I really want to call on um, 
the state we are in in education as well, right? Um, and what the reimagining needed to be a long time ago, right? But, you know, we had 2020 and onward, and we really aren't even past, you know, obviously the deep and un, uh, deep and racial unreckoning and COVID. And so it's what I've seen quite a bit, um, because we have, um, you know, children, you know, but also work with youth leaders and schools, and there's kind of this back to business as usual, and mm -hmm. there really needs to be this emphasis on, you know, Jen Wright calls it, he calls it healing centered engagement. There needs to be spaces for healing, even within schools, right? And so what that looks like and means from his lens is um, that affirmation of culture and identity, honoring agency, relationship building, um, honoring, you know, diverse ways of meaning making, and honoring freedom dreaming and aspirations, right? So like how are educators holding space? How are they embedding these things within their curricular experiences? Um, it matters because our youth are experiencing system fatigue from education right now. And to your point, I know you were talking about social determinants of health, right? There is a lot of movement happening right now um, that I really want to make sure community is aware of um, with regards to, you know, new funds um, coming through the Behavioral Health Administration. Um, shout out to Kelly Mitchell. She created actually um, a career pathway in Behavioral Health Administration. And so there's ways actually for high school students, um, even as young as high school students, um, and obviously older to be able to, you know, become a behavioral health technician and a um, community navigator and, you know, things of that nature, like a peer support specialist, because there's such a need right now, um, as I know you know as well, sis, for um, mental and behavioral health supports um, that is led by and created by and manifested by Black and brown folks. We need folks to hold space for us um, who look like us, right, to really honor and acknowledge the system fatigue that is being experienced right now. And so there's like a plethora, you know, of, of opportunities in that realm. And I just want to make sure that we're able um, as a community, a Black community, to be able to tap in and to take advantage of those opportunities. Um, so I want to, you know, yes, shout out Yaspa, shout out your work as well with Center for African American Health, because I know you all are engaged in that work too, with regards to economic empowerment, education attainment, um, and social connectedness around social determinants of health and addressing mental health and behavioral health. Um, and also shout out to um, Paz Bryant, who is the founder of Apprentice of Peace Youth Organization, mm -hmm. um, who's also engaged in that work, and Daniel Sampson as well, with Driven by Our Ambitions. I'll add our partner, um, Rosina's Therapist of Color Collaborative. Mm -hmm. We've been working with them for two years and we just got funding renewed. And it's been um, remarkable and soul satisfying, soul satisfying to be able to say to the community, if you wanna see a therapist of color that looks like you, come to the center, we help with the intake and then we partner with Therapists of Color Collaborative to make sure they get the services that mm. they want. And what's so interesting is, you know, folks talk about stigma and barriers, which there are, but 
um, in the past two years we've been working together, I think we have a like a 98% completion rate when it comes to people um, completing their 18 sessions for an individual or 15 for family. And about, and, and under normal circumstances, 60 is great. And I think about 85% of everyone had never even gone to therapy before. So we really are demonstrating that if you match people up with therapeutic resources and people that look like them, mm -hmm. that, that stigma melts away. Yes. And um, also shout out to therapists of color because Rosina's done an amazing job. Not only is she um, providing this service, but she also provides a lot of latitude and freedom for those therapists who have not had the best experience working in these systems. And in her collaborative, she's creating a career pathway so new therapists coming up can get the the hours and the practice they need. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so vital, so necessary because we absolutely have to honor and sustain our souls to be committed to this work. So that's beautiful. We do, and that's the, it's, it's simple when you think about it, but when you're in it for decades, we have to deal with this but it's not our problem. We can't, we can't break down something we did not build. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yet um, folks would have us exhaust ourselves in trying to navigate it. 100%. How do you define health? Mm. I love this question because, um, you know, oftentimes um, it can be such a constricted way of, thinking about health, like, oh, physical, right? Um, cardiovascular disease, you know? Um, but, you know, health is wealth. <laughs> um, and, and we know this, right? Um, if we look at, you know, defining health by our experiences of joy, um, our experiences of replenishing, um, inclusive of our spirituality and our connectedness and our rootedness to our ancestors, um, to our ways of being that honor us and, and keep us and help us to recoup while we do this work. Um, our health is also peace of mind, right? Like how are we able to move through um, what we know as a toxic white supremacist society, but not be distracted by that and still have peace of mind and really hone in, you know, as I always say, like our black finesse as we do this work um, to sustain ourselves and our families. Um, living strong, um, living long, um, being able to be fully present is also a form of health as well, right? So, um, being able to like put down our phones and be fully present with our children and our family and our communities um, with whatever it is that we're doing in it and or engaging in it is also a form of health as well. Another question I have for you, and it's interesting because we both have the opportunity to take a sabbatical. Mm -hmm. um, looking back now, mine pretty much saved my life in many ways. Ooh. And, but I want to get to the question of what brings you joy? Mm, mm. And did you have during your sabbatical any new, oh, I'm also a lot older than you are, but did you have a new, during your sabbatical any new 
moments of understanding for yourself? Yeah. Oh, I love this question. Um, a same, same for me, honestly, sis. I, um, when I took that sabbatical, I was it same. It it saved my life. It saved um, my wellness, my health, um, physically, mentally, and spiritually. Um, I was at a place when I had taken my sabbatical. It was 2021, and you know, there was just so much fatigue I was experiencing from, you know, being a founder and um, holding the weight of um, not just the organization, but obviously um, the village within the organization, right? Like these are people in minds, bodies, mm -hmm. and souls we're talking about. And um, we're an only BIPOC space. And there's a lot of uh, intergenerational healing Um that I was holding and, and navigating um, with the folks internally, while let alone dealing with what was being thrown at us and um, expected of us performatively, right? Whether from funders or policymakers, um, et cetera. And, you know, I had experienced um, loss at that time, you know, um, like May Kenyatta, rest in peace. She, um, was constantly holding space um, with our youth village and our team. And she had passed. I remember when I was on sabbatical and I had experienced mm -hmm. some losses of youth as well to gun violence. And so I really needed that break <laughs> um, in order to sustain myself in this work and, and to be rooted and more present. Um, that's definitely one of the learnings was being more present and saying, you know what? That is, she'll be there tomorrow, <laughs> whether it's work and email an opportunity, it'll be there tomorrow. And if I can't get to it because I'm not able to be fully present and present myself with the quality of mind needed to engage in whatever that is, that's okay. It can wait. You know, another learning that I had as well was honoring folks in the ways in which they want to be honored. That was a huge learning for me during my sabbatical. Um, my parents they had celebrated 35 years of marriage that year. And I had the opportunity to take them to Puerto Vallarta and it was their first time. And my my father was turning 60 that year. And I really, I remember, I really, really wanted to celebrate him in this performative way, right? I was like, oh, dad, I'm gonna do a party for you. And <laughs> like, we're gonna play music and we're gonna like do all these kind of corny games to honor you. And because of what I do for a living, in many ways, I'm used to kind of the performance, right? And this kind of eccentric way of being. And my dad is like calm swag, <laughs> right? <laughs> Which is totally fine. But it was a huge learning for me that I could still honor him, but the way he needed to be honored was on his terms. And so we did calm swag ways of honoring dad, right? And I had to relinquish that control and I had to relinquish kind of my own notion of what it means for folks to be honored. And that was a huge learning for me. So I was thinking about that with not only family, but even with our youth village and the different ways in which we can make sure they feel honored and dignified and doing this work too. And it was just really healing to have that learning and unlearning, <laughs> quite frankly, as well. Well, Dr. Janice, first of all, I just want you to know that... I am so impressed and proud of what you've built and what you continue to do and really the the battles you fight for us that 
most people will never hear about publicly. And I just want you to know, I see you and I appreciate your support of me and my work. So always know if there's, if there's anything I can do for you, I'm there. But thank you so much for joining us today and just sharing like the, the tip of your iceberg of wisdom. <laughs> mm, thank you, sis. I, I so appreciate you and just love you dearly. And I see you as well. And I honor you and your leadership and just the wealth of wisdom and, and ethos that you bring anytime you bless anyone with your presence. So thank you so much for having me. Well, that's our show for today. Our next episode, will be looking at another significant social determinant of health, the wealth gap. This education discussion, like so many others, is critical for our community. Don't forget it wasn't that long ago in America that being Black and wanting to learn to read was risking your life. You know, my um, father always used to say, in America, white children are raised with expectation, while Black children are raised with hope. So our job is to turn hope into expectation for Black children. Thank you again for tuning in. I'm your host, Deidre Johnson. Remember, everything can be transformed. It's time for us to reimagine a few things. So design the life that you want to live. <laughs>